All right. Well, we're going to, as always, just kind of pick up where we left off. And and uh, we ended up last time in Genesis 15. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention something I forgot to mention. I didn't mention last week. I think I mentioned something in Genesis 15, 7 um, last week in the kind of the discussion time afterwards, but I didn't mention it. Um, everyone, not, not everyone heard that or didn't get on the recording, so I'm going to probably pick up right there. We, we spent most of last time talking about Genesis 15.6, and um, the, the one little verse here, that, that uh, the first verse having to do with faith and the, the crediting of righteousness to to Abraham, and then, then how Paul makes a really big deal out of that. Well, because it is a really big deal. It's not just Paul's uh, personal opinion. It's the fact that grace is accessed by faith. Faith lays hold of God, what God is giving to the human soul. And it's always been that way. It was that way from the very first person who had faith that we know about in the Bible. Genesis 15:6, Abraham's experience, and it's that way today. Faith lays hold of, you could say it this way, faith lays hold of a finished work. Faith, just like sight, sees and experiences that which is already real in the natural realm. And that's what, that's what sight does. You know, you, if it's in a dark room, there might be something, you know, there that's nice. There might not. You don't know. It's pitch dark, whatever. But when light shines, when, when natural sight uh, begins to function, then you can see and experience and live in what's what's already there. You know, sight doesn't see anything that's coming. You know, it doesn't see something that's not there. It accesses something that is there. <clears throat> in a very similar way, faith lays hold of, sees. Um, faith being the sight of the the spiritual sight of the heart that really is God's sight working in you, God's view, God's light shining in your heart. Faith lays hold of a finished work. And in Abraham's day, it, it kind of reached far away, it reached uh, beyond the cross, and, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Of course, we understand that righteousness is a person, so this person was credited to, to or Abraham received the, the uh well, the merits of, of someone else. But for us, faith lays hold of what has already come in Christ, and as we as our eyes open to see it, it becomes a present reality and experience to the soul. And it's always been that way, and we focused on that, and that's, that's Paul's po- whole point about faith. You know, it's not by works, it's by faith. Christians talk about that all the time, but we think that faith is just believing. And that's the problem. Faith is so much more than just believing. We think that, you know, you just got to believe it, and then it's your, you know, then it'll be yours one day. But that's not how faith. Is. Faith isn't belief. Faith is, is a is a seeing that works in you by the Spirit, that allows your soul to walk in the reality of what God has finished. And to some extent, you know, that was available in the old covenant, although it saw what was coming. And not what was, <clears throat> and now faith is still a spiritual seeing, but it sees what has come and lays hold of it. And um, okay, so but then this thing in in uh, verse seven, I, I think I just mentioned it, and then I'm gonna try to. Oh, I might, I might, I might make take a look, make a little ground this this uh, this evening. I'm not sure because there's some things I don't understand very well, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about something I don't understand. So. Um, he says here 
Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to inherit it. Now that just sounds like a, it just sounds like a pretty, you know, uneventful Bible verse. But in a lot of ways, it's kind of like God's signature. He says it over and over, not just to Abraham about leaving, it's bringing him out of one land to give him the inheritance of another land. He says it to Israel and to, Mo- to Moses or to Israel through Moses, I don't know how many times, uh, over and over and over again, he identifies himself as the God who brought him them out of something to bring them in to something else. Now, that's why is that important? We've already kind of talked about this, I think, at, at some in some uh, detail in this class, if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken. But um, it's important because we don't get that about the about our salvation. We don't see salvation as a <clears throat> we don't know God generally speaking as the God who brought us out of a whole country kindred and father's house and and introduced us into another completely foreign different uh, kingdom and 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 dominion and and land and realm and man. We don't we don't know him that way. And and God keeps saying that over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament and 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 still uh, and, and Paul says it too, you know. Paul says he translated us out of the dominion of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or, he, or when we were dead in transgressions and sin, he lifted us out. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up. I mean, it's in the New Testament too in, 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 in descriptions of the fulfillment. And it's in the Old Testament in descriptions of a type and shadow. And we still don't get it. And that's, that's why it's a big deal to me. How does God identify himself? How does he sign his name on the dotted line? Here's his name. I'm the God that brought, that has, not that will, because Christians sometimes think of Christianity as an exodus, you know, when we die or in the future. But here is this God who has uh, brought us out, who has brought us out, and has brought us in to show us an inheritance in a completely foreign land. And we know that that land is Christ, that land for us that got into the land of rest, the land that has cities we didn't have to build and wells we didn't have to dig and crops we didn't have to plant and all those pictures that you see in Deuteronomy we'll get to eventually one year. What What is that land for us from our perspective? That land is a relationship with, with, with God and his son and everything's already finished. We inherit something we didn't have to build. And we rest in it. We stay in it. We abide in it. We don't add to it. And in fact, if you add to it, you're, you're, you're taking away from it. Anything that man tries to add to this perfect work, anything that comes from the flesh actually spoils it, corrupts it, becomes you know maggots in this finished work. And, and <clears throat> I just, you know, those, these are just the kind of things, my dog's howling. These are the, just the kind of things that you you know you read the Old Testament. If you just kind of keep reading through it, these are the the little things that start standing out as uh, as just patterns that you see. Why does God keep calling Himself the God who brought us out of something and brought us into something else? Why does He Why did He do that? Because it's true. Well, then if it's true, why aren't I experiencing that? That's a very good question and one that we should ask our, ourselves all the time. If these are finished work statements of the of the Old Testament and New Testament, because Paul, Paul clearly describes them as finished work realities. You know, you have been, you know, whatever. You have been made alive with him. You have been seated with him. You have been transferred with him. You know, whatever, translated out of this and into that. If these are finished work realities... Are they my experience? And if not, why? 
Well, Genesis is going to answer those questions for you. Paul will answer them for you in, in very clear language too. You know, do you not know? And and the issue with Abraham is that he did not know. He didn't know where he was. He had to lift up his eyes and see and walk and experience the land that God brought him into. But again, I just I just want to highlight this verse. Uh, I want to reach into your Bible with my highlighter and 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 highlight it for you because because um, you're going to see it over and over and over and over again. You may not see it exactly the same language here, you know, but it's 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 going to be the way that that God identifies Himself time and time again, and that's because that is the way that you're going to experience Him. I mean, seriously, guys, when you when you when the eyes of your heart begin to open, that's what you see. You see a place that you don't belong to anymore. You see a man, a nature that you understand it because you are it by nature, but you but it also starts to feel foreign. You you don't identify with it. You don't. It's you, you kind of like Paul stand back and look at it and say, "That's the sin dwelling in my members. That's really not me." You know, it, it feels like a new place. It feels like a new mind. It feels like a new light. You know, um, and, and it's and it's weird, but it's real. And when you begin to to walk, when you begin to lift up your eyes and see your salvation, this somewhat, you know, you know, common, normal, uneventful description of God starts to become a really interesting thing. You know, he keeps saying this thing, and uh, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt to bring you into a land and show you. You know, he keeps saying this, and it just gets filled up. With, with when the light floods your heart, it gets filled up with meaning, like every other scripture. But you know, I'm just pointing out this one, I guess, right now. So then comes this story in Genesis, the the the, the last part of Genesis 15, the second half of it. That's that's um, that's a little weird. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, basically to summarize it, God promises Abraham that he will inherit the land. He says it in. Uh, um, he says, I'm going to give you this land to inherit it. And then verse 8, God, uh, Abraham says, how shall I know that I'll inherit it? And God's answer is, this reminds me of like Jesus' answers to the questions in the New Testament. Abraham says, how will I know that I will inherit it? And God answers, bring me a three-year-old heifer. <laughs> I, just, I don't know, I find that really funny. It's not like he, you know, Jesus doesn't ever really answer our questions. Usually there's not enough light or truth in our questions to merit an answer. What he does is he shows us something. He he speaks to the source of our question. He speaks he speaks about the truth that makes our question either make sense or make no sense. And then we begin to to realize that that's the case, you know. Um and they used to always – this happens all throughout the Gospels. If you haven't noticed it, you will start noticing now that I mentioned it because someone comes and asks Jesus a question and his answer – it's like he, it's like he's totally ignoring the question or he's answering someone else's question or he's, he's telling a parable that has nothing to do apparently with the question. And, and that's just kind of like how it is here. You know, how do I know I'm going to inherit it? Bring me a three-year-old heifer. You know, If I answered one of my kids' questions <laughs> that way, they would stare at me like a – strange man but <clears throat> okay so what what he does is he does this picture of he has them bring a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and young pigeon and um and, and he tells them to cut them in, in two 
and he places them, you know, side by side, but he leaves like a little alley in the middle of these dead halves of, of animals. And, and when the sun goes down, Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Um, and, and then God says this, Know for certain that your seed, your seed, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. Now remember, he's talking to Abraham in the promised land. And he's telling them, that his seed is going to actually start out in, a, in another land and eventually, you know, come back to where he is. And he says, and this is interesting too for a few reasons, but he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then it came to pass when the sun went down and, and it was dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces and on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your seed I have given this land, from the river uh, of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. He, he basically gives the, the boundaries of it and, uh, and describes the, 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 the nations that currently live in that land um, that they're going to overcome. And, and I don't, I, I wish I did, I don't, I don't understand uh, m most of this uh, story, and, and so I'm not going to say, you know, a whole, a whole lot about it. It's definitely, you know, I've had I've had a lot of thoughts about it, but I, in some ways, I've I've learned to distinguish um, the difference. Well, there's just a big difference between my thoughts and something that kind of appears in the light. You know, you. you it just, I, I just, I'm always hesitant to like share my thoughts, um, or at least if I do, I qualify it as my thoughts, and not something that really has come come into you know the light in a clear, at least partially in a clear way, never fully clear, but, um, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting to me that the whole thing here starts with Abraham's question, how do I know I'm going to inherit this land? And so what God shows him after that seems to me to be the answer to that question. And, uh, and, and you know, some commentators and some people say that this is just the, uh, this is just the way that they made covenants back in the, those days. And that answer doesn't really satisfy me at all. There's a reason for it. There's a view of Christ involved in it. There's, the guy doesn't just... In fact, one commentary I read today said God cons condescended to basically do uh, enter into a covenant the way that, you know, was common in those days. And, you know, I, I don't... Anytime anyone says anything like that, I just, you know, basically throw the book across the room because <clears throat> uh, that's dumb. You know, God doesn't just do things for no reason, you know, I mean, and, and he certainly wouldn't have recorded them in scripture just because he was condescending to do things in a humanistic way or something. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. There's something to see here, something important, and, and, and you know, it, it, very, it may have to do with the fact that God was showing Abraham the way of the inheritance, and that is the way is through death, the, the, the way 
of possessing the land, the way out of this foreign territory, is a, is a way that he makes through death. Um, I don't know. You know, the burning oven and this, or the smoking oven and the burning torch. I mean, that's a, those are pictures of God that appear all throughout the Old Testament. God as a consuming fire. God as a smoking oven on top of Mount Sinai. God as a fire in the burning bush. The fire in the uh, in the in the oven of. of um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar that uh, the three guys get thrown into and aren't consumed. I mean, God's a fire all over the place and clearly that's some kind of a picture of God and passing through the midst. There, there's something there that I need to see and don't see very clearly except that the only thing that struck my heart possibly is this, this way. That he makes a way through death and that's the way of the inheritance. There might be something to that. I'll give it to you to consider. But what I, what I believe I have seen a little bit of something that, that, again, I've seen it repeat itself throughout the Old Testament, is what I call the round-trip journey of Christ. Um, the round-trip journey of Christ. That is to say, there's a number of pictures where Christ, where God is dealing with somebody as a picture of his seed, or his son, or his word, or whatever. They start in one place. They go out from the presence of the Lord, and they go into a hostile environment, a hostile territory, a territory that is enslaving them or cheating them or trying to rob their inheritance. And somehow through some, through a variety of pictures of the cross, that somebody that goes in ends up coming back to the exact same place that he started of course, we're talking about Christ here, okay? Christ comes out from where he was, goes into a hostile environment, a, an environment that rejects him, and an environment of slavery and death, whatever, comes back to the exact same place that he started, except with an increase of his seed, a harvest of his kind, uh, a nation attached to him, you know? There's so many pictures. That I wrote down a few here, but I'm not going to try to mention all of them. Um, we'll get to them as we go through them, but... Uh, you know, uh, Jacob is coming up pretty soon. Jacob starts in the father's house. He goes out from the father's house, his father Isaac's house, and he goes to get a bride, an inheritance, right? He goes out and he goes into the land of Laban and he, he spends time in this foreign land and the whole time Laban is trying to shaft him and he's trying to rob his inheritance and cheat him out of his wives and tries to give him the first and he gives him the first when he really wanted the second and all those pictures are so cool. We'll see them when we get to them. But after after 20 years of striving for an inheritance in a foreign land, he comes out again to return to his father. But when he comes out, he has the bride who is the first, the bride who is the second, uh, both Israels, that is to say, Israel in the flesh, Israel in the spirit. He has a flock of, of, of goats that have reproduced in front of the cross, seeing the, the striped staff. They themselves bear the image of that striped staff, and they come out, and, and Laban, he puts a three-day distance between him and Laban, and Laban tries to follow him, and God says, you can't touch him. He's gone out from your territory. There's nothing you, you you have no right to touch him for good or for bad. And Laban tries to find the household idols. He can't even find them. He can't see them. Joseph can't see or Jacob can't see them. Nobody can see them. 
and, and the story is perfect. Anyway, he comes back to his father with this inheritance. Okay, he, he starts in a place at the father's house. He goes out from the father's house, goes through this whole drama of struggle and, 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 and uh, you know, this, this Satan-like figure who is robbing his inheritance and holding back his bride and all this kind of thing and then comes back to the father. The same story uh, happens with Moses. Moses, have you ever noticed when Moses is talking to God on Mount Sinai, uh, he, you know, that whole thing where God, the burning bush, that happens at Sinai, or at least the mountain range of Sinai, and uh, a lot of people don't realize that. And one of the signs that God, God says, "Here will be the sign." This is in Exodus chapter three, and you can look it up if you want to. I, I, just, I, I can't really quote it perfectly, but God says, "This will be the sign." that I have sent you, that you will come back to this exact same mountain and you will worship me here with this company. All right, I just butchered that, so I am going to look it up. Let me see here. Um, okay, here it is. Uh, Exodus 3.12. Uh, well, in 11, he says, Who am I to go to Pharaoh to bring out the children of Israel? And God says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And and so Moses comes out, okay, and he goes out from the presence of God, the burning bush. He goes into this hostile land, has a you know a, a, a whole the whole deal with Pharaoh, and gathers a people unto himself. Um, and I just thought of another one that's really cool too. But he gathers a people to, unto himself, and he he brings them out. And brings them back to the exact same mountain where he started. And that's where they they all go up in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. They all go up. Um, and they they all enter into the mountain. There's that covenant made with blood there and they all enter into the mountain. That whole story is so beautiful. But even to show Moses pictures of this reality, um, he says... He gives them these two signs. And what are the two signs? The signs are both pictures of this same thing, this round-trip journey in, in, in different ways. The one is that the staff starts off in the hand of Moses. Remember, he says, throw your staff down, it becomes a snake. Then he says, pick up your, put your staff again, and it turns back into a or pick up the snake, and it turns back into a staff. Well, that is another picture of the same thing. What do I mean? I mean that... What started as a staff in the Lord's hand is thrown into the earth and becomes a curse. Jesus becomes a serpent. He becomes the serpent on the staff. And not only that, he swallows up all of the rest of the curses in himself. Remember when Moses threw down the staff in front of Pharaoh and um, and the other ones, the other magician, they made their own little snakes out of staffs. I don't know how they did that, but they somehow pulled it off. And they, but, but, but Moses's staff swallowed up the other snakes just like Christ himself becomes a curse and swallows up all of our swallows us uh, us up as as a curse the cursed adamic man cursed is every man who who hangs on a tree the the, the cursed is everyone who does not abide by every word of this law i mean all the curse that adam has brought upon himself cursed is the one that's sent out from the garden i mean he he, he eats up all those 
all those curses and then comes back into the hand uh, where he started. Same with the, the leprosy. It starts in the bosom of, of Moses as a, as a clean hand, a hand without leprosy. It comes out and it has leprosy, right? It, it turns white, white as snow because of the leprosy on it. It goes back into the bosom and it's clean again. These are both pictures, in my opinion, of this, this, this salvation that God was going to work in Israel this salvation that God's showing us in Abraham, this God, salvation that God shows us in Jacob, where, where something starts out in the presence of the Father, goes out from the Father, and in some way involves itself with this unclean, hostile territory, but then, at the end of that, brings back to the Father not only what was originally there, but an increase and, and, a, and a harvest and, and, a, uh, and, a, and the glory of, of, of what God had... Uh, what God has sent out from the beginning. It's just like Isaiah, is it 55? Later in 55? I can't remember where it is. Where it says, The word, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. Just as the rain goes out and, you know, brings forth a, you know, fruit and, uh, there's something else, fruit and buds and something. But it's like this picture of the word of God going out and and bringing back up you know rising up from the ground this harvest that you know a tree full of fruit or something returning it back into the sky you know and um you know another one that's so cool is 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 uh is Joseph Joseph the you know he he die well he 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 kind of dies in types and shadows when his brothers uh throw him into that pit sell him into Egypt and bring his bring his bloody uh, cloak uh, coat back to his father, and his father recognizes him as as dead, and he goes into Egypt. He goes into this land of slavery, right? And, and he stays there until they carry his bones back out and bring them back to the same place that he started. And the body of Israel is the increase of Joseph. He is; it's a resurrected corporate body that 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 has his seed and his bones in the midst of them leaving Egypt and it says that specifically in Exodus I want to say 13 or 14 where it says and they're, they're marching out of Egypt and it says and Moses was careful to take the bones of Joseph just as he had prophesied or something like that so I say all that uh, kind of long winded more, more so than I was anticipating but uh, to to point out that this round trip journey that God is talking to Abraham about is something you're going to see. There's other stories too, but it's something you're going to see again and again and again. And, and just keep your eyes open for it. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus starts, you know, he was with the Father in the beginning. What you know, he was with God, was God, and he comes out from God. And he and, he, and to those who receive him, he gives the right to be called sons of God. And then he brings them back where he, and he says, Father, I desire that those who you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. He brings them right back to where he started and he does it now. He brings your soul now back to his father. And from that moment on, from the moment of new birth on, he just keeps speaking to your heart. Open your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see where you are. Let me show you. Let the Spirit of God reveal what I have done so that you can walk in the good of this, of this, uh, this, this finished work. You know, and, and, and like, oh, there's so many, we could tie this into all those stories in so many beautiful ways. I mean, we could say, 
now, you know, God, Jesus could say to us now, just like Jacob could say to Rachel, Satan cannot find the idols that you brought. They don't, you know, there's nothing to accuse you about. And and I can't even see them either. You know, remember Joseph or Jacob couldn't even find the household idols. Didn't even recognize that they had been taken. I mean, he, God deals with, with us that way in Christ. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I just like the way it says here in, in this verse. It says, you, you will, let's see, go back to it here. Um... Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land. Now that's true about all of us if we become his seed. Once we are born of his spirit and baptized into his death, we are partakers of his seed and heirs according to promise. And so if we are of his seed, then we are strangers in a land that's not ours. And there's lots of verses that talk about this too. Um, that talk about, I mean, that's that's what Hebrews 11 calls everybody that walked by faith. Strangers and foreigners in a land passing through in tents. Tents are pictures of temporary dwelling places. That's what we are in right now. Paul calls our bodies tents. Peter calls our bodies tents. The tents in the land, all pictures of us wandering in a place, although we belong to another place. And so he says, know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. And and yet, it says, afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. A very short, summary version of the gospel, but you could pretty much say that, well, it's what Paul says. Remember, he says... Um, I'm going to ruin this one too. But he says, though he was rich, he became poor. Remember, speaking of Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor, that we in him might become rich. That's not very accurate, but it's something like that. And uh, and 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 that's, what is the richness? What are the possessions we, we come out with? In the types and shadows, you know, Israel plundered Egypt. But that's not talking about financial or material gain. That's talking about God taking out of this hostile land all that is valuable and good, giving it to us and using it to build his own dwelling place. The riches that were taken out of Egypt, the gold, the silver, and the and the material were given to them by the Egyptians not so that each one of them could just have some kind of personal wealth, but because those are the things that God used a few chapters later to build his tabernacle. And they all gave freely of those things, and God built his own house. In the same way, God takes your soul out of the enemy's camp, plunders the enemy's camp and uses what he stole from Satan, so to speak, to build his own house. That he uses he, he makes his house out of you. You are and that's what all the scriptures are talking about, where it talks about he, he brings in the wealth of the nations. I've heard that talked about like natural wealth given to Christians, you know, that's the most ridiculous thing. The, the wealth 
bringing in the wealth of the nations is is God. He, he's 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 spoiling the enemies. He's 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 defeating the one who has the power of death, and he's bringing out of the nations who are you know born dead in sin and trespasses under the reign of sin and death he's bringing out from those nations something precious something precious to him the gold the silver the 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 precious materials to build his own house his own dwelling place that's what he's doing and uh how did i get talking about that oh cuz it says cuz it says uh afterwards they shall come out with great possessions what a I mean I mean that's just such a summary statement, such an understatement, really. A great possession. We come out having him as our our great possession, and he brings us out with the material as the material, so to speak, that he will use to build his own eternal dwelling place. To me that's I don't know if that's striking you tonight, uh, but but to me that's a really awesome picture of our, our salvation. You know, there's 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 verses in the New Testament that talk. You know, there's lots of different views of our salvation in Christ. One salvation, but you know, you can see it as a as a bridegroom getting a bride. You can see it as a king inheriting a kingdom. You can see it as a high priest now interceding on behalf of his body. You can see it as you know. There's lots of different ways. A harvest a. a a bountiful harvest of a seed, but one of the ways that the New Testament talks about our uh, our salvation is a total victory over an enemy, plundering his camp, taking the spoils of war back to uh, the the conquering camp. You know, the the the, the, ar- the conquering army's camp. That is a, or, and even parading the spoils of war before the Lord. I mean, the, these are pictures that you read about in the New Testament and in the Old Testament types and shadows. It's part of our salvation. Part of what God did in Christ is entered into, he was Jacob entering into Laban's territory. He was Moses entering into Pharaoh's territory. Okay? Whatever picture you want to use, he goes into the enemy's territory and he comes out with the most precious thing. Even though Laban tried to, remember Laban said, hey, you can have all the striped goats. And then he stole them all, remember that? And then God made a way for the striped goats to, 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 um, to, to still be Jacob's inheritance. Even though there's an enemy trying to hold on to what is rightfully his. Even though there's an enemy that's more near of kin to us than Christ. Now this goes into the story of Ruth because that's what it's about. It's about, I mean, Boaz says, you know what, there's someone else that actually has, it's closer related to you than I am. And, and, and I'm gonna, he has first dibs. And, and yet, um, Boaz ends up redeeming her, and that's that's another. That's a, I'm totally off on tangents here, but um, that's another story that that is. Uh, Jesus becomes our next of kin to to bring us out into our inheritance to redeem us, and and in Himself, and and that all pictures there. But 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 there he go, has to go into this enemy's territory, defeat the enemy with a great judgment. 
That's what it says here in Genesis 15. I will also, I will judge the land that holds you captive. I will judge them. And I will bring you out with great possessions. And, and how many pictures are there of this throughout the Old Testament? I don't know how many. There's tons. And so when Paul talks about these things, about um, victory over the enemy, making a public display of him, you know, taking captivity captive or, or, you know, leading us together in a victory procession, you know, as the fragrance of Christ unto God, or this kind of language that appears throughout the New Testament, he's not just pulling it out of nowhere. He's pulling it out of these stories, these pictures throughout the Old Testament. Um. All right, well, that may be enough. I, I don't, I, again, the details surrounding the rest of this story with the burning oven and the smoking something, um, I don't, I can't offer you a whole lot about that. But I'd love, to, as always, you know, I'd love, to, if you guys are reading it and, and, and seeing something, shoot me an email or talk about it afterwards. I'd love to hear uh, what you have to say. We don't have a ton of time left, but let me just say a few things about chapter 16. And, uh, This is, remember, back a few weeks ago, we talked about, um, we just kind of in a summary fashion talked about a number of um, pictures. I think it's when we were talking about Cain and Abel. We looked at a number of pictures of the first and the second. You know, Cain, the first is, is rejected, and the second is accepted, and the the first is jealous and in some way persecutes the second but eventually the first is is uh cast out and the second is established forever in the presence of God that story comes to us over and over again with um you know Cain and Abel starting it and then now Isaac and Ishmael and then later Jacob and Esau and then um and then Leah and Rachel, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, and then Saul and David. Eventually, you know, there's um, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, but this is the second one, and each one of these are pictures of the first and the second, the the first man, first creation, first covenant. The ways that it falls short, the ways that that it never uh, became or was. It was a shadow. It was a picture. It was a prophecy. It was a promise at its best. At its worst, it was a total distortion of the image for which that it was meant to to bear, which is usually what it was. It was a something created to bear the image of Christ, but something that bore the image of the wrong man, and so God put it away. You know, but at its best, uh, the things that are the first uh, pictures of the first um, were arrows that pointed to the second. They they weren't the fulfillment of what God. Wanted, but they were the things that testified of it, prophesied of it, you know. And we've said before, the whole Bible is the story of the first and the second. It's, you know, on on the one hand, it's the promises, prophecies, types, shadows, pictures, testimonies of that which was to come in Christ, and even even in the best of those shadows. God was never pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. Sins were never removed by them. Uh, God never really liked their um, burnt offerings, their you know celebrations and feasts as as something in themselves. He only liked them for the same reason that I would like a picture of my wife. Um, it, I don't like it because it's paper. 
You know what I mean? I like it because it points to someone that I know and that I love, you know? So it, it's the goodness of a picture is the, is the amount of testimony that it's giving of whatever it's taken. You know, it, it, in other words, you know, we say it all the time. We say like, ooh, that's a bad picture. Throw it out, you know? Why? Because it doesn't look like me. It looks like, you know, an alien. It looks like E.T. Or, or whatever. We say that kind of thing. Um, when a picture doesn't, a picture is bad when it no long, when it doesn't resemble the thing it's supposed to be pointing to. Um, but even when it's perfect, it's still a picture. And the thing that makes it valuable is the image that it bears, not the thing that it is in itself. The Old Testament is filled with pictures, filled with pictures that God took that were created to point to the one thing that his heart was pleased with, Jesus Christ. A lot of those pictures pictures involved humans. Some of them didn't, you know, like parts of the natural creation. The sun rises in the morning, sheds light on the old creation, and, you know, you can walk in the light, naturally speaking. Man can't really, at least we haven't figured out a way yet, to mess up that type and shadow. But a lot of the types and shadows that involved kingdoms and priesthood and laws and stuff like that, that, that involved people, we really did a good job of messing up those pictures so that they no longer look like what God was was trying to point to. But I guess what I'm saying is either way, the first, even if it's a perfect picture of my wife, it's not my wife. And so this story here of, of Isaac and Ishmael is another view of the first and the second, but it brings specific things into view. In this story, the contrast that we see specifically and that Paul draws attention to as well in, in Galatians chapter 4 is a contrast between f uh, flesh, a work of the flesh, per, uh, a product of the flesh, a product of Abraham and Sarah's desire, natural desire to see a spiritual thing come to pass. And that contrasted with the spirit, the spirit's own doing, the the work of a, you know, it's you could say it's flesh versus spirit, or you could say it's promise versus works. That's what you're really see, seeing here. On top of that, you're also seeing, as Paul points out in Galatians chapter four, these two sons. One of them is a son of a slave woman that lives in bondage, and one of them is a son of a free woman that is free. He also points out the fact that one of them is not the heir of the father, the one that inherits the father's house. The other one is the heir that inherits the father's house. So with these specific things, uh, God is pointing out to us a, a very important understanding of the first and the second. Abraham, and there's lots of little lessons and, and sermons that are packed into, I mean, you could pull lots of sermons out of all of this. I mean, there's, I don't know how many Ishmaels I've made in my life trying to produce through human effort something that is entirely a work of God's Spirit. You know, I think that my life um, as a Christian, for, for much of my Christian life, was just one Ishmael after another. And every one of them, God would say, that's not my son. 
you know, that's not, that's not the one I was talking about. And then I would just say, just like Abraham, but can't he inherit the blessing? You know, what, what's wrong with him? Can't he live in your sight? Can't he live before you? I, I made this for you, God, you know? This is what you pro- you promised me a son. Look, I made it. You know, I made the son. Or you promised me, a, you know, an inheritance. Look, I just here's here it is. It's a it's a Cadillac. Or, or you know, I don't know. We we do. I think we do that with with so many different things that where we hear we read something about uh, you know what God is offering us, something about life or purpose or or. Um, peace or 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 anything and we go about you know we, we don't see it in the natural realm and so we go about producing it with the work of the flesh not turning our heart to see it not letting the lord reveal it as as christ in christ and before we know it, we have this ishmael running around and we've invested a lot of time and effort raising him you know, and, and helping him grow, and it, it becomes this giant thing. And 13 years later, you know, we're just like Abraham, saying, "Wow, well, what's wrong with this?" And uh, God says, what, "What are you, what are you talking about again? I don't even, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, I, you, you, you created something, but I still have in mind the very same thing that I saw from the beginning. Abraham, you will have a son. And Abraham says, "I already had one." And he said, and God says, "No, that's not." You know, that's not the son that I recognize. That's not the the seed that I promised. That that didn't come forth out of the dead womb of Sarah. That wasn't life out of death. That was life out of Hagar, a slave woman. You know, the life that I was talking about, the seed that I was promising, was a life that came out of death. Paul talks about that in a, in, in Romans chapter four. That Abraham was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was dead, and yet the promise of God came out from death. And and uh, you know again you could you could squeeze a lot of um, sermons and 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 things into that that one reality that man is always taking God's words and trying to produce what those words are describing through effort in the flesh through our own ideas through hey I have an idea. Go into the tent of Hagar. You know, those are, that's how man thinks. We have the words right. We have the promise right. We have the Bible in front of us. And yet we use the wrong man and the wrong means to come to that end. And we end up with an Ishmael. And even though Ishmael may have all kinds of natural blessing, you know, or natural, to, to use a better word, maybe prosperity, um, it's still not the the son, the seed, the thing that God recognizes. Um, you know, I wrote down this. I've read it before in one of the classes previous to this one, but I'm just going to read a few verses from Galatians 4. 22 just to see this is just to see what Paul sees in these two these two sons we'll talk more about these two sons when we get to the actual sacrifice of of um, of Isaac or the almost sacrifice of Isaac but in Galatians 4:22 here's Paul using these stories to speak of um, two totally different men two different 
two different creations, two different Jerusalems, two different covenants. It says, uh, 422, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? It's like he just throws that in there in case you missed it, you know. Which things are symbolic? For these are two covenants. These are two relationships with God. These are two people, people groups in relationship to God. Two covenants, okay? One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. He's comparing, he's comparing Ishmael to the natural seed of Abraham, the Jews, who were still trying to relate to God under the law and therefore finding themselves in bondage. Okay, so he says, the one corresponding to Mount Sinai, which is, you know, or the one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is the natural Jerusalem. Now, a lot of times when we talk about uh, Ishmael and Isaac, we, we talk about like Muslims and Jews. And, and historically speaking, or, or bloodline speaking, that's, that's probably true. I mean, at least the Muslims trace their lineage to, to Ishmael. In fact, they say that Ishmael was the, the, uh, um, was the son that God recognized, incidentally. But in the language of types and shadows here, we're talking about Jew, Jews in the flesh and Jews in the spirit. We're talking about Israel with circumcised flesh and Israel with circumcised hearts. We're talking about sons of Abraham by flesh and sons of Abraham by faith. Those are the two seeds here. Paul is very clearly saying that Ishmael corresponds to natural Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that at that time was still in bondage under the law, refusing their Messiah. And the other son is... Isaac is, verse 26, the Jerusalem above that is free. Free from the law because we're free from the flesh. Not just free from the law so that we can live in the flesh. Free from the law because we've died to the flesh. Which is, the Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. And then he quotes that verse from Isaiah and says in verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And then he mentions the thing about how the first persecutes the second, and that's exactly what was going on in Paul's day. As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. That's what was going on. The, the natural seed of Abraham, the Jews, were persecuting the Christians in, in the first century. But <clears throat> without getting into the history of that, it's just really clear here that Paul is seeing, I mean beyond clear, that Paul is seeing in these two sons... The work of the flesh versus the work of the promise. A people that end up in bondage versus a people who end up in the freedom of the Spirit. Um, a, a covenant with God where the man under that covenant was not accepted. A covenant with God where the one man who is accepted is the relationship for all of us. I mean, all these things are just explicitly said right here in Galatians chapter 4 as Paul interprets this um, this story for us from Genesis 16. So I'm out of time. Um, 